Amen. Questions. What is our ultimate authority for faith and practice? It's question one. Number two, how can sinners be in right standing with a holy God? These are the kinds of questions that seem to rise to the surface for those concerned in the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. What ultimately determines our faith and practice And even more importantly, to the heart of a spiritual question, how can sinners be in right standing with a holy God? Now, the story of the Protestant Reformation is a big story. It would not be conceivably possible in a short session together to cover all the many names and political events and locations that all contribute to this big movement known as the Protestant Reformation. It really covers not just Uh, the latter part of the 1400s into the 1500s, it extends into the 1600s. What we want to do tonight is look at some big pieces. And that's really all we'll seek to do, to make some broad contours clear in what these big pieces coming together show us. What about this phrase I'm using, though? Protestant Reformation. What do I mean by this? This is a movement. It's a reference to a movement historically that rose in response to concerns within the Roman Catholic Church of the medieval era. And when I use the term medieval, I mean the same thing as you might hear with the phrase Middle Ages. But the Middle Ages or the medieval period had a a series of abuses and concerns within the Roman Catholic Church that were protested, let's say. They are protested by leaders, uh, some of which would come from within the Roman Catholic Church, and they want to seek reform. And therefore, coming with some kind of protest, seeking reform, is uh, is bringing about a, a desire to revive what is good, to correct what is erroneous. Uh, The reformers, as one writer put it, didn't see themselves initially as inventors or creators. They understood their role to be of, of coming to revive what was dead, to bring into right alignment what had been derailing. They were seeking to reform and to engage in sound, healthy protest. There are some names that are connected to this. Um, Three that I want to focus a lot on tonight. I'll mention other names, but the name is Martin Luther, the name Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli is uh, one way to pronounce this. The W in this era and in uh, these European cities will often have a V sound. So if I say a V and you're thinking, he wrote a W though, that's the reason why. Zwingli and then John Calvin. Um, If these names are even vaguely familiar to uh, those of us who are part of an evangelical world, these are historical leaders of a Protestant Reformation in different parts of Europe. There are some popes that I will uh, refer to. Pope Julius II and Pope Leo X are two popes that are important. But these names, and especially Martin Luther, will understand why a lot of time is given to these figures. There's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary named Carl Truman, and every once in a while he teaches a course on the Protestant Reformation. One of his students remarked 
Dr. Truman, you could just rename your course, not the Protestant Reformation, but Martin Luther and a couple other guys. That's basically what you could name it. And uh, while that's a, a, a joking way, of course, to uh, describe a renaming of a course, historically, that's not too far off with how the influence of Luther looms so mightily. We need to know some things about the situation, the circumstances of church practice when these people rise to any kind of influence. We need to think about medieval Roman Catholicism. And what you need to know is that they considered a leader called the Pope to be the vicar of Christ or God's representative on earth. That's what it meant for him to be the vicar of Christ. And as God's representative, grace would flow through him. And especially through certain sacraments that were uh, comprising Roman Catholic practice. Uh, There were certain sacraments like baptism, confirmation, the mass, penance, marriage, ordination, the last rites. These seven sacraments and the grace needed for sinners was all part of this uh, Roman Catholic practice in the medieval era. And especially there was emphasis on the mass. The mass is uh, the Roman Catholic practice of what uh, we would look at as the, ordinate, the uh, ordinance of the Lord's Supper, though the understanding of the elements differs significantly. Um, the Mass, according to the Roman Catholic practice, believed that Jesus' very body and blood were in these elements. Because as the priest offered these elements, the bread and the wine, they were transformed. Uh, This particular interpretation of uh, the elements was called transubstantiation, that the substance was transformed and uh, revealed more clearly to be the very body and blood of Christ. In 1215, something called the Fourth Lateran Council, which met at the Lateran Palace in Rome, which is why it has its name. In 1215, here was the definition of of transubstantiation. Christ's body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread and wine having been changed in substance by God's power into his very body and blood. Now the service of the mass, if you were to attend it, you would not in the larger populace understand a word that was spoken. The Mass in the Middle Ages was given in Latin, and it's very uh, well understood by uh, historians that many priests were struggling to keep up and to recite the Latin Mass because many of the clergy did not have a full understanding of what they were repeating either. Uh, But nonetheless, you certainly have within the pews uh, people who are coming to a service, listening to something in a language that is not as accessible to them as you would wish. In 1215, this Fourth Lateran Council spoke about what it meant to be justified or to be right with God. And what they they, uh, explained was that people needed to confess their sins regularly to a priest. And when the sinner confesses the sins to the priest, the priest will hear all of these sins and then he will require some kind of penance or response to demonstrate one's genuineness and seriousness, acts of penance to be performed. Now, no one was ever righteous enough to ever merit salvation. 
Even within the Roman Catholic system in the medieval era, this was recognized to be a problem. People could confess their sins quite literally for hours on end. This would be Martin Luther's very experience. Hours and hours of trying to engage in introspection to speak of sins. But in 1274, a particular doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church became official, the doctrine called purgatory. And what it assured people is, even if you have not been able to confess all of your sins and experience remission for your sins and do penance for your sins, don't worry, there is an in-between place. Before you go to heaven, you will go to purgatory while your sins, under however long it's uh, tailor-made for each sinner, uh, you will spend those years in purgatory before entering heaven fully cleansed. And uh, you, might, you might say, well, people that you might lose as loved ones and friends might be in purgatory for quite a long time. Well, the Roman Catholic medieval era had an answer for this as well. You could say prayers for the souls which had died and gone to purgatory. You could hold masses for the souls which died and had gone to purgatory. And you could seek to lessen the number of years they would have. Now, medieval Catholicism believed that there were some people who died incredibly righteous. And not only did their merits cover their own sins, their merits surpassed what they as an individual needed, and they had merits that they took with them to heaven, which stored up in what you might call the treasury of merits. And those merits, which they did not need any longer, you on earth could access either individually or someone uh, who has died could access it and you on their behalf would be a, a help. More on that in a moment. So medieval Catholicism believed that some people died being so righteous that their excessive righteousness transforms into merit to be used or counted to others who needed it. In 1342, a pope issued a decree which said you could uh, receive indulgences or uh, have time of punishment lessened or removed, partially or fully, indulgences that could be purchased. Uh, one of these uh, uh, the notions of purchasing an indulgence or a remittance from sin was certainly uh, an incentive during the Crusades. The Roman Catholic Church would promise um, remission of sins and indulgences for people who would uh, fight on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church. But um, in 1476, there was a pope named Sixtus IV. He issued a, a, a papal decree. We call this a, a papal bull, which means a formal decree with his stamp on it. The word bull comes from bulla, which means his stamp. So a papal bull or a papal decree, a formal word from the pope in 1476, here's what it said. Indulgences could be something you buy on behalf of the souls that have been departed and are in purgatory. So you could pray and you could do penance and you could do mass and you could buy indulgences. And this would not only help you, it would help people who died. Now you need to know that this is the world into which various individuals of influence are going to be born. 
Now, Jesus himself uh, doesn't take um, some uh, non-Son um, of God role, but the, the awesomeness and holiness and righteousness of Christ did seem so overwhelming to Roman Catholic leaders that they would not encourage people to just approach Christ outright. But because Christ's mother might be someone he listens to, you could pray to Mary and she could take your prayer and ensure its answer as well. She would uh, serve as a kind of mediator with the mediator, okay? And uh, Mary herself plays this very important role in medieval Catholicism. In addition to this, these excessively righteous people who died would include saints, and they also had works and merits that you could access, and so prayers to them or relics that were associated with them had a kind of superstitious power that you could have. Before these gentlemen, there were some rumblings within the Roman Catholic system that uh, there were indications, storm clouds overhead, that something like the Reformation would fit nicely in. I don't want us to imagine that these three come along the scene and there was no indication prior, no rumblings ahead of time that something was coming. There were several indications, actually, historically. A man named John Wycliffe lived in the 1300s. And Martin Luther lives at the end of the 14 and into the 1500s. So John Wycliffe in the 1300s begins to publicly identify that the Bible is the supreme authority for spiritual matters. Wycliffe's position was quite controversial. Just as I opened with the question, what's the final authority in matters of faith and practice? The Roman Catholic system would say the Pope is. Not the scriptures, the Pope is, and his dispensing of grace through the sacraments that we need, and his interpretation of the scriptures. The Pope would be the final authority. Wycliffe says no, and not only does he reject the papacy, the, uh, st the state of the Pope and the successors, he rejects the teaching about the Mass, that it's transubstantial, that these elements become the actual body and blood of Christ. The man John Wycliffe rejects that as well. He organizes a translation of the Latin Vulgate into English so that people can hear in their own language something that prior to this was just the uh, Latin Mass, something that was inaccessible. Wycliffe doesn't uh, think that is sufficient. He wants the people to understand something when they gather. Another man named John Huss. John Huss was born in the 1300s, and he's executed in 1415. Um, he followed and defended the kinds of teachings of Wycliffe, but what he publicly defended and advocated cost him his very life. He was imprisoned and condemned to death for heresy in 1415. Even a couple gentlemen like that, Wycliffe and John Huss, are enough to illustrate that coming to rise against the mon uh, monolithic Catholic system in the medieval era was to take your very life in your hands. You did not have any guarantee that you would have a long life, family and friends to count on. You could rather expect to be betrayed, ghosted, ostracized, and all the rest because your very stand boldly and courageously for the supremacy of the scriptures could mean your very life's end. Now, not only are there challenges religiously, there are some interesting political and social situations happening in Rome. Rome is a very important place in Roman Catholicism. And Rome was falling into decay during the 14, 13 and 1400s. Some major players were employed. 
Raphael was a, uh, an artist who was commissioned to work on some apartment places in the Pope's own personal location in the Vatican. Michelangelo was recruited to work in the Sistine Chapel. Even someone like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo had important roles within uh, Roman Catholicism to beautify places in Rome. Important cities, important cities, important buildings like the Sistine Chapel or St. Peter's Basilica. Now, none of these projects were cheap. To do something like St. Peter's Basilica, for example, which was a very ornate church in the Vatican, um, the St. Peter's Basilica was a highly expensive project that you needed funding for. And the Roman Catholic system caught on quite quickly what they could do. They could sell indulgences to people, not even requiring repentance or acts of penance, but to simply say, make this big donation and we will give you remission of years off in purgatory. And not only that, you can buy indulgences for people who have died and gone to purgatory. So don't you want to help grandma and grandpa? Don't you want the spouse that uh, you're uh, widowed or widowered because of? You want to help them and they're in purgatory. And there was a great manipulation of the system and, and a kind of... Uh, uh, prosperity, strange health, wealth, gospel in its early forms, working even within the medieval era. And that's because these projects were expensive. Um, now, into this era was also the printing press. There would have been no Reformation without the printing press. The advent of the printing press took place in about the mid-1400s, and it was invented in the West by Johann Gutenberg, who was uh, working on movable type, and therefore, after a short amount of time, in the 1480s, <coughs> print shops were springing up all across Europe. It is without question, historically, the Protestant Reformation would not have been what it was, had providentially the Lord not ensured a printing press to spread all of this information. One other figure before we talk about Martin Luther. A man named Erasmus published a Greek New Testament in 1516. And alongside his Greek New Testament, he put his own translation of the Latin to help people get to the original language of the New Testament, especially those who knew Latin and could translate it. These small efforts to publish and publicize things that were not otherwise accessible to people before is what sets up such a, an, uh, an incredible influence from Luther. Luther was born in 1483. His father was a copper miner. And he wanted his son, Martin Luther, to be a lawyer. And young Luther <coughs> enrolled in the University of Erfurt. And when he was 21 years old, he was caught in a terrible thunderstorm. This thunderstorm frightened him so massively that when lightning struck him nearby, he feared for his very life and decided to cry out for help. And his cry sounded like a vow. It sounded like, St. Anne, help me, I shall become a monk. And when Luther makes this vow and the thunderstorm uh, does not take his life, Luther is willing to make good on this very spontaneous vow, I will become a monk. And you might imagine people in such circumstances where they fear for their lives and they say, Lord, if you'll just spare my life, I'll do this and I'll do that. Luther's vow 
though spontaneous at the time, was that he would become a Roman Catholic monk. And this infuriated his father, who wanted his son to become a lawyer. It was not good news when he found out that he was going to join a monastery and engage in various specific rules to guide his life. And uh, not only those rules, but um, a kind of solitude that would characterize much of Luther's um, early life as a monk. He would confess his sins for hours as a monk, trying to be as best uh, he could a Roman Catholic faithful monk. Luther did not feel better, though many hours were spent in such confessionals. Uh, And even though monks were not uh, encouraged to read the Bible privately, Luther would spend some time with the Bible trying to increase his knowledge of it, having stirred within him spiritual curiosity and searching. One opportunity came his way in 1510. In 1510, he had the opportunity to go to Rome and visit various holy sites and relics. And boy, was he excited. He went to Rome and he saw all of these things that people would travel to see, which were treated with superstition and that could uh, dispense merits to people. These various relics connected to all kinds of things. Now, um, it's not because uh, Luther um, believed that these uh, relics Um, worked 100%. He did have doubts, questions that would come to his mind. Even though he was a Roman Catholic monk and seeking to be a good monk, it would cross his mind, are these things really true as they say they are? About these relics and about this process and about this uh, merit. In 1511, he was uh, transferred to a monastery in a small town called Wittenberg. In Wittenberg, there was a new university, and Luther had the grand opportunity to be a teacher of theology. Well, Luther um, excelled at this. Uh, He lectured on Psalms, and he lectured on Romans, and for years he spent time studying the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures. But something you need to know about a church in Wittenberg. The castle church in Wittenberg boasted 19,000 relics for people to come and behold and which could dispense merits. And you might say, okay, let's have some examples though. Like what kind of relics are we talking about? Let me give you an example of the kinds of relics that they say they had at this castle church. You could come to the castle church in Wittenberg and see a, a wisp of straw from Jesus's crib. You could see the body of one of the children massacred by Herod the Great. You could see breast milk from the Virgin Mary. You could see a strand of hair from Jesus' beard. You could see a nail from the cross, a piece of bread from his last supper with the disciples. You could see a twig from the burning bush of Moses. You could see a few of the Virgin Mary's hairs, even some pieces of her clothing. You could see teeth and bones from various saints. You start to consider here, my goodness, people believe this, and they did believe this. And they traveled far and wide to go to places like Wittenberg, where these kinds of relics were boasted about and put on display. Each relic, they said, of the Wittenberg Castle Church, each relic could knock off a hundred days of purgatory. Which, if you think about all the different relics you could touch and behold and come near to on certain days, it was going to be quite uh, helpful for your future in purgatory. You want to see as many of those relics as possible. In 1515, Pope Leo X issued what was called a plenary indulgence. You could buy an indulgence of an entire remission of punishment for sin. 
Now that's better than just knocking some days off, some weeks off, some months off. A plenary indulgence was the largest kind of indulgence there was. There was nothing greater than that because this was all-encompassing. The Pope at the time, Leo X, issued these uh, promises because they're trying to build St. Peter's Basilica. And if you could afford to buy yourself a plenary indulgence out of purgatory, not only would it help you, by helping yourself, you'd be helping them. They had a lot of projects to build. And they needed your money. And so one of the people going around selling these indulgences was a man named Tetzel. Uh, Tetzel had several sayings. Johann Tetzel said things like, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And it helped that it rhymed, both in German and in English. He also said things like, here's another example of his jingle, Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open and in strolls mum. And so he would have these kinds of jingles in order to incentivize people. Don't you want to help your dearly departed loved ones? Then give us your money. And it really bothered Luther that indulgences were being sold without asking people to repent of sins. Now, we would like to say that Luther had the kind of clarity in 1515 and beyond, where when Tetzel is saying these things, Luther would already have in mind deep concerns about the presumed authority of the Pope and the practice of uh, the sacraments this way, the Mass, as well as uh, this indulgence um, principle. But Luther's concern more, more specifically was inviting people to buy indulgences without telling them to repent. This made no sense to Luther because Luther was so aware in his own self-examination of how sinful he was and how, how holy and righteous God is. I mean, Luther's been lecturing from Psalms and Romans and elsewhere in the Old and New Testaments. And as Luther has taught theology in Wittenberg, Tetzel's touting and, and manipulation of the masses doesn't sit well with Luther. Luther's preaching during the week involves his interaction with parishioners. And what he finds is that some of his parishioners learn of Tetzel in the nearby town. And Luther's parishioners go to Tetzel. They buy indulgences and they come back and Luther knows these people. And he believes people are being exploited and taken advantage of. Now, Luther's instinct is not to have a problem with the Roman Catholic Church as a whole. His desire is that these abuses be corrected. Luther's thinking is th these are errors and corruptions that need to be weeded out. They need to be addressed. And there was a day coming up on November 1st, 1517, when the merits of the saints were offered at the Castle Church in Wittenberg. It was called All Saints Day. Pilgrims would come on November 1st, 1517 to file past all the relics. They would uh, appeal to the saints. Merits would be granted. The righteous demands of God would be met as these merits are dispensed. So the day before, on October 31st, on All Hallows' Eve, on uh, October 31st, 1517, Luther writes a series of concerns or disputes called the 95 Theses. And he nails them to the church door. Now, if we came to church tonight and somebody had nailed something to the door, we might think to ourselves, that's awfully rude. Why didn't they just lay it on the ground? Put it under a... Why did they have to nail it? Um, we don't look at what Luther did here as something unusual, though. The door at the church in Wittenberg was a public door. 
And public bulletin boards, like some public doors on buildings like this, function the same way to us. If you passed a bulletin board and somebody had tacked something up there, that was for information. For all we know, Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses wasn't the only document up there being advertised. What Luther wanted was a debate and concerns to be addressed that he brings up in his 95 Theses. His first of the theses says, when our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. You see, there's a reason Luther opens the 95 theses this way. He doesn't like that indulgences are being sold and people aren't being told to repent. And this is a sit with him. So he opens this way saying, what is it that Jesus said? And he looks at the practice of people like Johann Tetzel and he says, they're out of sync with what Jesus has said. They're not telling people to repent. Oh, so on October 31st, 1517, he does this. And nothing immediately cataclysmic happens. Uh, there are a couple years that go by when in 1519, an opponent named Johann Tech, uh, I'm sorry, Johann Eck, wants to debate Luther about who has the final authority, the, po- the Pope or the Bible. And at this debate in 1519, Luther's study of the scriptures has led him to conclude the Pope does not have final authority. Um, Some uh, historians have said Eck has set a trap for Luther, that Luther will publicly reveal that he's willing to go against the ultimate papal authority of the church, which was not safe. But realizations were happening for Luther during these years. He began to believe that selling indulgences this way cheapened repentance. He believed that sinfulness in the human heart was the underlying problem that everybody had. He believed that sinners must agree with God's verdict of our sinful state and recognize we deserve condemnation and that we need forgiveness, which is found outside of ourselves. And it was during these days when he had a realization about Romans 1.17. He, in his own record of his reading of Romans 1.17, he says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which righteous Uh, is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, Luther says, by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. And I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. These realizations were um, not immediate when Luther is uh, a monk showing up in Wittenberg to teach theology. But over time, his time in the Word of God begins to stir within Luther a realization that I need righteousness and I can't buy it. I need righteousness and only God can supply for sinners what is needed. In 1520, Luther was writing like crazy. And what he had on his side was a printing press. And he began to write various things that outraged people within the Roman Catholic Church. He wrote documents like The Freedom of a Christian, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. When he's writing these various things, addressing his concerns and promoting his understanding of the gospel, the Pope issues a decree ordering him to recant his writings within 60 days or be excommunicated. This comes from Pope Leo X. Well, this is quite serious. Here's what Luther becomes reali- what he realizes. It becomes clear to him the Roman Catholic Church leaders, the Pope specifically, is not interested in debating Scripture with him. They just want him to shut his mouth. They want to silence him. 
And this stirs within Luther what will turn out to be an opposition to the Roman Catholic Church that he did not initially desire. He wanted to have a cogent conversation about the text. He wanted to discuss the teachings of Christ, the writings of Paul. But they didn't want to talk about the Bible with Luther. They wanted to have him silenced. And so when those 60 days were up, in quite fanfare that was uh, characterizing of Luther, he went out the city gates of Wittenberg and burned the papal decree in a fire in front of everybody. And uh, this, was, this was to demonstrate, if you will, an act of defiance. He will not go quietly as they want him to. So technically now Luther is excommunicated. And part of the ban in excommunication is that not only is he excommunicated, no one is to aid him or help him along the way. Um, anybody that did would be considered a heretic alongside him. In 1521, he is summoned to appear at what was called the Diet of Worms. A diet of worms is not something you eat trying to lose weight. A diet of worms is to be pronounced in historical terms, the diet of worms, and the diet is another word for assembling or meeting together. So at this diet or at this assembly, they are meeting together in order to have Luther acknowledge the materials that are published in his name and recant them. And when these writings are put upon a table, Luther does agree they are his writings. He's told to recant and he asks for some time. Luther had no doubt been hoping to address in some detail the things that he has taught. But again, it is clear to him, they don't want to discuss this. They do not want a lively, genuine debate. And so Luther is to return the next day. And on April 18th, 1521, Luther returns to face the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And Luther says to him, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. He says, I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Luther's Defiance and public formal renouncing, if you will, of his allegiance in front of the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the uh, defiance he has earlier given to papal authority. This no doubt angers people to a great degree, and Luther understands his life will be in some jeopardy. When he leaves the Diet of Worms, a uh, rescuing group is prepared to intervene. As his wagon is leaving, a group of people surround his wagon en route. And a kidnapping was staged. Luther is taken by people who prove to be allies. And he's taken to a castle called the Wartburg Castle. Where he begins to spend time translating the New Testament from Greek into German. And Luther's translation of the New Testament takes place in 11 weeks. Luther's got a lot of time. And so in 11 weeks, Martin Luther translates the New Testament from Greek into German. It was published in September of 1522. He eventually comes out of hiding and returns to Wittenberg, and part of his production and writing continues. He writes service liturgies, hymns for congregational singing. He begins to support and provide preachers to go into other towns. Luther's documents are spreading like wildfire, not just in Germany, but all throughout Europe. People know of the man Martin Luther. They know of his writings, and as the years are passing, the allies of Luther are increasing. Monks are leaving monasteries. Nuns are leaving convents. 
People are forsaking the medieval Roman Catholic practices and they are embracing Reformation principles that are unfolding. It is an electric, lively time in history to be alive. In fact, in 1523, there was a group of nuns who contacted Luther looking for some advice and direction. He told them they should escape and he helped arrange their escape. A wagon of barrels carried nine nuns secretly hidden inside these barrels to Wittenberg. In fact, because of the vows of celibacy, Luther found it uh, quite pressing to secure husbands for these nuns uh, in order to further substantiate the uh, leaving of these wrong practices where someone committing the, uh, taking those vows was to not have a spouse. He found husbands for eight of them. And over time, in 1525, Luther himself married the ninth one. Uh, So he had been uh, um, a monk, and uh, she had been a nun, and they married to uh, one another. Her name was Katie. Now, Luther continues writing, and uh, more publishing takes place. Uh, There is uh, another gathering called the Diet of Augsburg that takes place in 1530. He can't attend. After all, he's banned. Some uh, people would no doubt want him dead. But a colleague named Philip Melanchthon goes in his place, even drafts a confession of faith that several of the princes in attendance are willing to sign. The emperor wasn't pleased with it, but even those political happenings further demonstrate Luther's influence is profound. And that makes it all the more concerning, depending on your position. Now, as the years continued, Luther's health concerns increased as well. Heart attacks, abscess in his leg, excruciating kidney stones, dizzy spells, loud ringing in his ears, headaches. He died in 1546. He was 63 years old. He died in the very place he was born, in a place called Eisleben. Um, He had returned to Eisleben, where he died, in order to settle a particular dispute. I don't think it was in his mind that when I die, I want it to be in the very place I was born. But he goes to Eisleben to handle some matters. And he begins to sense that his life is near the end. And Luther was buried beneath his own pulpit. So we spent those minutes on Luther, and then briefly a few comments on these other two. Oryx Vingli was born in 1484. He's born the year after Luther is. And the significance for him is that he is a Swiss reformer. He is born uh, in 1484. His father is wealthy. He uh, goes to attend college, Zwingli does. And um, he, in 1506, becomes a priest in a town, a town that was virtually a military camp, a town called Glarus. And he decides to go and fight for them as a chaplain and, uh, and join even uh, some of the warfare, except the realities of it sobered his mind and shocked him, seeing up close the horrific nature of warfare. When he was back home in Glarus, he spent time reading Bible commentaries. He even got a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and he managed to memorize nearly all of the New Testament in Greek. Now, at first, like with Luther, Zwingli doesn't have initial strong reactions about the medieval Roman Catholic practice. But the longer time went, the more documents he read that had been printed elsewhere, the more he studied the scriptures itself, the more convinced he was of deep problems that needed to be changed. In 1519, Zwingli begins to preach in Zurich. And on January 1st, 1519, on his 35th birthday, 
He steps into the pulpit and says, I will no longer preach the assigned set readings that are part of these liturgical practices. I'm going to open to Matthew 1.1 and I'm going to preach verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. So he did. And then he did more books of the New Testament. And when he finished the New Testament, he went into the Old. And he just began preaching the Scriptures to the people who gathered so that they could assemble and hear the Word of God taught in their language. In 1519, Zwingli nearly died of the plague. He relied upon God's mercy and recovered barely. It created a change within him, emboldening him even more. One writer said that Zwingli believed the true secret to reform was to change individual hearts by applying the gospel. External reformation of churches must flow, he believed, from inward conversion if it's to be anything more than a cosmetic surgery. Zwingli, his influence continued where monks in the regions he had influence on were driven from their monasteries. People didn't like change. Um, Some of them resisted it, but nonetheless, it continued. He also married. In 1522, he married a woman named Anna. In 1522, some people who were under the influence of Zwingli decided to hold something quite bold during the season of Lent. During Lent, you weren't supposed to eat any meat. That was the tradition. And so these 12 friends got together and had a sausage eating party where they all ate meat together, further indicating a desire to break with what were man-made traditions and not regulated or mandated by the word of God. In 1523, Zwingli wrote his own set of theses. Now, Um, He wrote a set of theses outlining Reformation thought. 67 theses. He argued that Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. He argued that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was complete and it was not repeated in the Mass whenever it was taken. He argued that sinners must trust in Christ alone to be saved and have no promise in their works as a foundation for life and salvation. In other words, these these 67 theses were even more Reformation-oriented than Martin Luther's from 1517. The church of the people in Zurich adopt his theology. The city council of Zurich votes that the only preaching allowed in Zurich is preaching from the Bible. That's an amazing achievement in such a short amount of time. Now, Zwingli never lost his desire to be on the battlefield. He was actually killed in battle in October 1531. All of this time, during uh, his influence, monasteries shutting down, monks and nuns leaving, churches expunging relics and superstitious artifacts, and the Bible being proclaimed and sinners understanding the righteousness God provides in Christ. John Calvin. John Calvin was born in 1509. So if uh, Luther's born in 1483 and then 1484, Zwingli, John Calvin, 1509, born in France. Now, his father actually wanted him to be a priest, uh, but uh, he went and uh, decided to go and study law instead. Luther's father wanted him to be in studying of law, and he went to go be a priest instead. So Luther and Calvin's uh, uh, different directions are, are quite funny to think about. But Calvin loved learning. He was fascinated by the Renaissance. He was fascinated by classics and training and language. He began to learn Greek at an early age. He loved the scriptures, and his love for Christ was stirred. He published his first edition of the Institutes, 
when he was 26 years old. It was published as a small book at the time to be carried in a coat pocket. In 1536, he arrived in Geneva. He had planned initially to only pass through, but some of the people in Geneva wanted him to stay, and so he helped them further in the cause of Reformation. In 1536, he stayed there for a few years. Uh, The relationship with the city was strained. If you uh, recognize a city that might want change, it's still hard to have everybody buy into it at the same pace and to the same degree. Um, You can imagine that there can be many supporters, but you can also provoke a lot of other people as well. Um, Eventually, Calvin is ordered to leave the city, which is not what he expected in arriving in Geneva in 1536. He finds himself in exile. Uh, So in 1538, he's expelled. He goes to a place called Strasbourg, and he decides to do some writing. It's uh, among the happiest time in his life. He writes one of his many commentaries. Um, The first commentary he writes is on the book of Romans. And over the years, Calvin wrote a commentary on nearly every book of the entire Bible. He married a woman named Idaled in 1540, and um, she ends up dying later on. But uh, the people in Geneva eventually change their mind and want him back. Three years after expelling him, they invite him back and he goes to preach. He had been preaching when he left in 1536. And when he returns a few years later to Geneva, he goes back into the pulpit and he picks up with the very next verse that he had left off on all those years earlier. It's not that he didn't even miss a beat. Incredible. His wife struggled massively with her health. The final years of her marriage to Calvin was a slow death. She died in 1549, and Calvin said, I struggle as best I can to overcome my grief. I have lost the best companion of my life. We know that in 1559, Calvin produced his final edition of the Institutes. During these times, he was lecturing multiple times a week teaching the Scriptures. He was preaching at least twice on Sunday, and some weekdays and alternating schedules as well. His writing and his preaching schedule were prolific, But in the months before his death, we recognize that Calvin endures much physical suffering while producing this kind of output. He writes to his doctors in a letter talking about excruciating physical suffering, arthritic pains and hemorrhoids, passing blood, pains in the calves of his legs, kidney stones and ulcers. In 1564, he dies. He has sensed his death even before it was coming. He felt like it was imminent, so he made up his will. And he confessed in his will, I have no other defense or refuge for salvation than God's gracious adoption, on which alone my salvation depends. Calvin said, bury me in an unmarked grave. The last thing I want are my followers treating my tomb like a relic. He didn't want that. The Council of Trent took place in the 1500s, 1545 to 1563. And here's what we know of the Council of Trent. It was a gathering prompted by Roman Catholic leaders in the medieval period. One writer puts it this way. The Council of Trent was the most important movement of the Catholic counter-reformation. And it was their reply, so to speak, to the concerns of the Protestant reformers. And they issued in the Council of Trent a series of anathemas. And an anathema is an eternal condemnation. Here's what they say. In an excerpt from the Council of Trent, If anyone says a sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. 
This is their response. In a formal gathering, they say, if anyone says justifying faith is nothing else than trusting in divine mercy, let him be anathema. Trent went on, Council of Trent went on, to affirm the sacraments which dispensed grace to save, the existence of purgatory that cleansed and purged sinners of sin, the practice of indulgences to diminish and remit punishment, the uh, priesthood which would receive confession and pronounce forgiveness. In other words, the Council of Trent went out of its way to affirm the very things that the Reformation principles stirred such criticism against. In the years that followed, the 1500s saw the rise of bloody Queen Mary, who was the daughter of Henry VIII. She did not follow immediately after Henry VIII, but when Queen Mary did rule, she restored Roman Catholicism and persecuted very strongly people who were against it. Um, The Protestant Reformation did not die out with its martyrs. Indeed, the Protestant Reformation continued and many denominations began to practice their own understandings of how a church should be governed and how the Lord's Supper should be interpreted and how baptism should be administered. When you think of things like Presbyterians, Methodists, the uh, Assemblies of God, uh, the Church of Christ, Baptists, Um, And when you think about uh, the Church of England, you think about all these denominations that from the 1500s forward will have their root in some kind of uh, offshoot within the Protestant Reformation. These Protestant denominations stem from the Protestant Reformation. Now, there was an expression used in the 1600s called Semper Reformanda. It appeared first in 1674 in a devotional book. And what it means is always reforming, always reforming. And the desire was, let us not be a people who separate the word of God from our practice, but in our practice, always seek to bring things in line with the scriptures itself. This was not a phrase to say we're reforming our scriptures, uh, we're adding to it or taking away. Always reforming was not about changing the truth and the foundation of the scriptures. It was about rather bringing in line the practice and disciples' life in keeping with the scriptures. Kevin DeYoung summarizes it this way. Semper Reformanda is not about constant fluctuations, but about firm foundations. It's about adherence to the scriptures, no matter the cost to ourselves, our traditions, or our own fallible sense of cultural relevance. DeYoung says the only reformation worth promoting and praying for is the one that gets us deeper into our Bibles and not farther away. So, friends, one of the takeaways in from the Protestant Reformation with the opening question, what is our final authority, our ultimate authority in matters of faith and practice? Well, the answer is exactly what the Reformation shouted in the 1500s and 1600s and beyond, and what you can find in the early life of the saints in uh, the early church. And that is the importance of the Scriptures to speak to the people of God about God. That He's revealed Himself uniquely in His Word, which is authoritative, inspired, and infallible. And we also find the answer to the second question. What is it that brings sinners into right standing with the Holy God? It is not indulgences and merits of saints and sinners. It is rather the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that the sinner will turn to looking to what Christ has finished 
and completed for sinners. We're saying that Jesus is the perfect and final and full substitute foreshadowed by all of those offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament. And that Jesus has accomplished atonement and that sinners have hope and trust in Christ and that their merits can never save them. Nor other sinners who have died before them can save them or help them in any way not be condemned. It is solus Christus. It is Christ alone. And it is sola fide, by faith alone. That is how salvation takes place. We think about a mighty fortress is our God, which we've sung together tonight. In the fourth and final verse, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray together.